if I hang out a shingle and run my barber shop and I cut somebody's ear off, um, I, the individual barber and owner of the shop, I'm going to be liable for that, even if it's one of my employees who cuts off that ear. Welcome to a better lifestyle. I am your host, Richard, and I will be with you throughout this journey. This show is here to empower individuals to do more in life professionally. You will find a variety of topics that will help you to be more productive and more successful. So join me and the professionals from different industries as we bring education and knowledge for more success. Hi everybody, my name is Richard. Welcome to A Better Lifestyle. Today our topic is business law and I have the pleasure to have Gordon Firemark. I hope I'm pronouncing the name right. You got it right, yes, absolutely. Hi Richard. All right, hi. Uh, welcome, Gordon, to uh, to a better lifestyle, to my podcast. Thank you very much for uh, accepting my invitation. Uh, yes, so like I said, today it's all about uh, business law. So uh, Gordon is going to educate us a little bit on uh, the legal side of business. So uh, we got to touch a little bit of basic stuff and then grow from there. Um, Tell us a little about. Uh, tell us uh, a little bit about yourself. Who is Gordon Firemark? Well, Gordon Firemark is sometimes known as the podcast lawyer. So uh, I I love podcasting. I I'm a an entertainment lawyer by training. That is a business and intellectual property lawyer who serves folks in the film and television and media industries. And so when I started my practice and was looking for ways to grow and market my business, I happened upon podcasting very early on in the days. And so I started my own podcast back in uh, 2009, so 13 years now. And um, my co-host and I started doing a show called Entertainment Law Update. And in the course of doing that, I, I learned that um, there were no resources for podcasters to understand the legal aspects of things. So I wrote an ebook, and uh, I have made myself that resource. <laughs> so I uh, try to, you know, be as visible in doing shows like this and sharing with people about the the aspects of the legal stuff that uh, creative people in general need to be aware of and understand. Okay. And uh, how long have you been uh, a lawyer? I've been practicing law since 1992, before the before Al Gore invented the internet, as they say. So <laughs> right around that time. And uh, um, as I said, doing entertainment law, representing people in the film and television industries, live theater as well, and that kind of thing. So it's really my passion. I just love anything to do with entertainment and media. Okay, great. Uh, what, are the, what are the types of business structure that someone could set up? So business structure is an interesting topic. You know, anybody who wants to start a business or, or really anytime you're doing anything that starts to look like a business, you're already using a structure. It's just the default structure of a sole proprietorship. That means one owner. If you have multiple owners, then it's called a partnership. And the, the law generally uh, has default rules that sets these things up and establishes the relationships between partners and those kinds of things. Of course, it's a good idea to get that relationship in writing. You have a partnership agreement, a contract that outlines who owns how much and who's in charge and who gets to vote on things and those kinds of things. 
But if you want to get a little more, um, a more sophisticated, I guess you could say, especially if you're in a business where there's some risk associated with it, you want to limit the liability of the of the owners, the partners in a business. So you form a, uh, either a corporation or a limited liability company. These are the U.S. terms. I know they're called different things in a, in other countries, but uh, um, and and the idea of that is that the partners make an investment in their company when they start it up, and then that investment is really all they stand to lose if something goes wrong, if the company goes under, or if there's a a business-related loss or liability, someone slips and falls in the store or something like that, they're suing the business, not the individual owners. And so you can form the corporation, which is the older form of business entity. And the idea behind corporations was just that, that um, it was actually the Dutch shipping and sailing ship business that... um, that uh, sort of established this in the, I don't want to say the 1600s or so, where each ship was its own company. So if the ship sank, the whole comp- the whole ownership structure didn't, you know, didn't lose out. Uh, it was the, that one loss. And so people would invest in individual ships and, you know, that was where the risk lay. So that's the idea behind corporations. And then LLCs, limited liability companies came along here in the US in the, I want to say the mid late seventies, early eighties. And they really started taking off in a big way in the nineties and into the, the new, the 21st century now, um, as a somewhat simpler, easier mechanism to operate a limited liability venture with multiple owners who can invest and and not be at risk beyond the size of their investment. So that's the the form we usually are recommending small businesses to to use these days. Okay. And uh what are the what are the pros and cons on uh, for each of those structures? Can you give well, a little uh... Sure, sure. So the sole proprietorship and the partnerships, the the ones that don't require any particular government filings or anything like that, it just sort of happens by default. Those are great because it's easy. It's simple, nothing to do to to get started. The the downside of that is, of course, that when uh, something happens, the partners or the owner is liable for everything that happens in the business. They are alter egos of one, one another. So if I hang out a shingle and run my barber shop and I cut somebody's ear off. Um, I, the individual barber and owner of the shop, I'm going to be liable for that. Even if it's one of my employees who cuts off that ear. But if, uh, if I have that corporation or LLC, that liability is limited. Um, so you're sort of working without a net when you, when you uh, operate a partnership or a sole proprietorship, the uh, so the advantages of course, of the, corporations or the LLCs is they protect against that liability and they set up a more formalized structure. Um, You can use them as an investment vehicle. People can invest without being exposed to that risk. And uh, and so you can have multiple owners, but only one or two people in control of the company. So it's very flexible. There are some tax advantages and depending on where you are, it's a little different, but lots of good pluses for for the corporate or LLC entity, but the downside is they are more complex. There's a cost associated with starting them. Uh, they pay taxes separately. So the corporation or the LLC is a taxpayer in the eyes of the government. And so uh, sometimes there's a risk of double taxation. You pay once at the corporate level and then once at the individual owner level on the, on the income they receive from the company. So it's worth having a conversation with your tax advisor and or a lawyer to uh, 
make sure it's right for you. But uh, as I said, small businesses, we usually recommend LLCs these days. Okay. And uh, how does someone, uh, if they're starting a business, um, how does someone, if they want to build a intellectual property, how does yeah. it work? Okay. So let's talk about what intellectual property means, first of all, because um, you know, it's, it's a pretty well understood concept, but I just want to be very clear. So intellectual property is the kinds of assets that are created by the human mind, inventions, writings, recordings, brand names, those kinds of things that really don't have a tangible form in the real world. It's just something that it's a product of the mind. So we, we treat uh, inventions with patent law. We have trademarks that protect brands and slogans and you know product names and things like that. And copyright law protects the original work of authors. So you and I today, we're making a recording of this show. We are the authors of this podcast. Now it's your podcast. You're the one who pushed the record button. So it's probably going to look like you are the owner, but there's an argument to be made. And this is why lawyers like me exist. There's an argument to be made that you and I are joint owners. So I will say right now, I hereby waive and relinquish any claims to ownership of this episode. <laughs> uh, you have my permission to make the recording and to own all of the results and proceeds and uh-huh. it's yours. So um, <clears throat> I encourage people to get that in writing when they can, but now you have a recorded statement. So, <laughs> so, so intellectual property is this broad category of products of the mind that include patents, copyrights, and trademarks. And then there's a fourth sort of category called trade secrets. Now, trade secret is really um, a function of secrecy. It's it's only a secret if you, if you keep it secret. So uh, the law does get involved in protecting those things, things like the recipe, you know, the, the uh, formula for Coca-Cola or the 11 herbs and spices that KFC uses uh, on their chicken, those kinds of things. Yeah. By keeping those things secret, they have value. And the moment it becomes publicly known, that value starts to dissipate. So maybe you have a customer list or a particular process that you use that isn't enough to be patented or something like that. You keep it secret, you keep it to yourself. And so you use non-disclosure agreements or contracts with people that where they promise not to make it public. And that's how you protect those things. Copyrights and patents uh, are, are protectable under a different st- uh, structure. The copyright is the easiest. You create the thing, you own it. And the life of the copyright is also the longest. It lasts for uh, the life of the author plus 70 years. So if you write something today, 70 years after you die, your grandchildren will lose the ownership of, <laughs> of that thing. But until then, it's a way of generating revenue. It's a way of making money. So the, these laws are designed to incentivize the act of creation. With inventions, patent law, it's a little different. It lasts for 20 years, and you do have to go through a process of filing and registering your patent. Um, but the idea there is we want to give the inventor some incentive to create it, but then we also want to make it possible for society and culture to grow and build on the things that have gone before. So after 20 years, the patent expires and other people can use that technology in their next thing or whatever. And then trademarks, you know, protecting distinctive brands and marks and logos and things like that. Um, You know, and everybody here is familiar with Nabisco, right? You see that orange, the red triangle in the corner of a box of cookies or crackers, you know what company it's coming from. That's a trademark. You call a cookie an Oreo. It's a chocolate 
wafer sandwich cookie with cream filling, <laughs> but it's called an Oreo. That doesn't mean that somebody else can't make a chocolate wafer sandwich cookie with cream filling. They just can't call it Oreo. So it's a way of a, sort of creating a customer loyalty and affinity and making sure the customer doesn't get confused about the source of the goods and things. And those things last as long as the companies continue to use those things, the, the trademark. So that was a lot to <laughs> to put out there. You uh, you answered a lot of questions because I was going to ask about uh, copyright and uh, trademarks and trade secret too because I sure. just saw that uh, I just saw that online not too long ago. I didn't know what it was and mm -hmm. explained it very clearly. Um, speaking of uh, trademarks, uh, how much does it cost to register? Uh, I know you're in the U.S., I'm in Canada, yeah. but what's the overall and what's the process? Well, here in the U.S., I don't know what the what the filing fees and government fees and things in Canada are, and, and I, I do know that the process is a little different from country to country. Here in the United States, there's a government filing that is done to protect a trademark. You, you adopt the trademark and start using it. That's how you acquire its ownership. And then you can register, assuming it's distinctive enough to qualify for registration, you can uh, ask the government to formalize that protection that I was talking about that prevents others from using confusingly similar names or, or, or phrases or logos. And that registration process costs, you know, the government charges a few hundred dollars here in the States, it's $350 to register, uh, plus whatever your lawyer's fees are, which might be a thousand dollars or more, depending on the, the, the registration. The other thing to know is that trademarks are registered in classes or categories of goods and services. So for example, you might have a brand of chewing gum that you've adopted a, a really distinctive name for. That's not going to stop somebody from using that name for their brand of sneakers or t-shirts or something like that. Um, in, in my world, we, we tend to land in the same few classes, the entertainment and, and streaming media and those kinds of things fall in one class, recordings and downloadable things fall in another, and then there's uh, books and publications, printed materials that fall in yet a third. And so those are the three I play in a lot. <laughs> and then, you know, folks are making t-shirts or ball caps. It's, it's interesting. T-shirts are in a different class than ball caps and purses, but um, there are 45 or so different classes here in the U.S. of of registration for those. So you have to register in each one where you're actually using it to, to uh, do business. Okay. So I was going to uh, ask a question concerning that, the names, let's yeah. say someone has a name, just, I think you said uh, uh, sneakers. Mm -hmm. uh, they use that name, but let's say you use it, but for something else, am I going to get in trouble or even if it's uh, registered? Or... Well, I wouldn't be a good lawyer if I didn't use the answer. It depends at least once in our talk, but, <laughs> but uh, it really does depend on the nature of your goods versus the nature of the original. So for example, the chewing gum brand, um, I probably can't use it for another kind of candy or confection, or maybe even for a snack food, but I might be able to, like I said, sneakers are far enough apart from chewing gum. There's not a lot of likelihood that a chewing gum maker is going to next delve into the the candy and snack marketplace or medical equipment or, you know, paper products or something like that. But certain brands get so uh, famous that they sort of cross over into all of the brands, you know, and, and some of them are just because of the, the, you know, it, it, you can't call your sneakers Nabisco because everybody knows Nabisco is such a powerful brand or, or Nestle or, uh, 
Coca-Cola, you know, and Coke might actually make a, a line of sneakers at some point. So it depends. <laughs> okay. And uh, how much uh, for the copyright? Let's say how much does it cost? to? Uh... Now, this is going to be great news for everybody. Copyright protection is automatic when you create the work. It's free. You don't have to do anything in order to own a copyright other than create a work of authorship. As long as it's original work, you can own it and you have the right to stop and prevent others from infringing on your copyright. Now, if you want to go to court, you would have here in the US, we have a registration structure. So you have to file a form with the US government and submit copies of the work. And the filing fee is about 50 or $60 US. And, uh, uh, and and that's that's it. it. It you have to wait a while for the bureaucracy to, to turn the registration through, but uh, but that's it. And then you can go to court and sue and and all of those kinds of things. It is a good idea to register the copyright because if you register prior to the infringement and within ninety day or well, three months of the first time the work has been published, you can also receive your attorney's fees paid by the defense if you win, and. Um, statutory damages, which means you don't have to prove how much you've lost as a result of the infringement. And that can be a really powerful um, incentive or, or reason for settlements or, or, or and frankly, sometimes just to justify the, the trouble of going to court and suing. So what if you infringe like by mistake, like you, how does yeah. it work? Well, by mistake, isn't really an excuse. Um, there is a defense called innocent infringer. I didn't know it was registered, but usually that would apply to somebody who didn't realize that this work wasn't already in the public domain or, or something like that. And so it's going to apply more for older works, but somebody comes along and infringes something you created last month. <clears throat> I didn't know isn't going to work. Uh, it's a, it's what we call strict liability offense. You made the, you did the act, you infringed on the copyright, you're liable. And the question then becomes how much. And, uh, if the registration has happened in that three-month window that I was talking about, statutory damages can range from anywhere from um, uh, $750 up to about $30,000 for each infringement. Uh, and if it's willful, if you knew or should have known that it was protected by copyright, that infringe that that damage award could be multiplied by as much as five times. So you could get up to $150,000 in in uh, damages per infringement. And that's why we see some really big results uh, involving infringements of music where, you know, uh, what was it? Uh, one of the cable companies here in the US, I think it was, I wanna say Cox Cable, uh, received a billion dollar judgment against them because of the number of different songs that were infringed by their users when they didn't take proper steps to stop it. <laughs> so it can be really a big, you know, a big deal. And if it's a very famous, um, famous song, for example, you have uh, uh, a few years back, we had what Pharrell Williams and, and uh, Robin Thicke infr well, allegedly infringed on a Marvin Gaye song from the early 70s. And, uh, you know, that resulted in millions and millions of dollars of, of judgment against them. So uh, because their song was as popular and, and well known. So mm. uh, I want to talk about contracts. Yeah. Uh, a few years ago, uh, I heard uh, a verbal agreement is uh, is good in court, and uh, is 
is that true? And how does it work? What's the difference between a verbal agreement and uh, a real contract? Well, so, uh, you know, the word contract is really just a, a synonym or a legal phrase to mean an agreement that a court can enforce. Uh, there's a famous famous quote from uh, one of my favorite quotes is, is uh, from the film producer Samuel Goldwyn. You know, MGM, the G was for Gold, Metro Goldwyn Mayer. Goldwyn Mayer. Samuel Goldwyn said, uh, an oral contract isn't worth the paper it's printed on. <laughs> and uh, uh, to a certain extent, he was right. But there have been a number of situations where that oral contract, there's enough evidence in the way the parties behaved toward each other or or witnesses seeing them make the agreement or something like that, where the court can actually enforce an oral promise. And really, that's all a contract is. Um, but, you know, the, we end up with questions about, well, what really were the terms of the contract? But you and I make oral contracts every day. We go into a grocery store. We don't sign a piece of paper that says, I'm going to buy this bundle of apples, right? You walk up, you put it on the counter, the cashier tells you it's three ninety five, and you pay the money and you walk out. That was a contract. Um, it doesn't always need to be in writing. So uh, there are certain kinds of contracts that do need to be in writing, but they, you know, it's probably more than we want to get into here. Just understand if you're selling real estate or something that's going to take more than a year to accomplish or um, prenuptial agreement for you know, getting married or something like that. Those are the kinds of things that do need to be in writing. Okay. Another thing I wanted to touch, how do you protect yourself? Well, not well, protect yourself, but protect your assets from uh, a lawsuit. Well, the, yeah, uh, the best ways are, as I, we were talking about earlier, is to form that corporation or that limited liability company and keep the business related assets under that. That is, create them inside the company or transfer them into the company and uh, and keep them separate from your personal things because your, you know, your house or your retirement fund or, or your cars or those, you know, the, or your bank accounts, those kinds of things, you don't want them exposed if something goes wrong in the business and vice versa. If you get in a car wreck while you're driving, you know, to the airport for a vacation, you don't want your business to be on the line uh, as a result of, you know, of a fender bender or something like that. Uh, so keeping it inside an, an entity is really important. Keeping track of your assets as you create intellectual property, for example, making sure you have records is a good, important component of identifying when did this thing come into being <clears throat> and, and who was involved in making it and do we have the right contracts and paperwork to make sure that I'm actually the owner of the things I think I own. Um, one of the principles in copyright, in all the intellectual property, but in copyright in particular, as I said earlier, you can have joint authors. When two or more people get together to create something, they own it together. Unless you have some kind of a contract or a statement like I made that that says, no, the, the company owns it or the, or the partner owns it, the individual. Um, when you have employees, the employer owns the work product of the employees. So that's good. But everybody else that you work with, if they're not your employee, you should get things in writing to make sure it's clear who owns things. What about the setting up a trust? So a trust is a another kind of corporate or or, or legal entity, usually used as a uh, a strategy for planning one's estate for after they die, or sometimes just as a way of holding certain kinds of assets. Um, 
in order to sort of keep them separate as well, oftentimes people will put their home, their biggest asset in a family trust. And that's a, mainly a way of deciding, well, if some if someone dies, who takes over? Who owns it next? And um, it's a solution. It's a, it's a an approach to um, avoiding probate so that things transfer more smoothly and easily after somebody passes away. So basically anybody who has a uh, an estate of a meaningful size should probably look at having a trust rather than just a will because wills, the courts have to look at the will and figure out, you know, was it properly made and all these things and trust sort of bypass a lot of that. And uh, how does someone uh, choose a good lawyer or find a good lawyer? What should the, what should the person look for in a lawyer, a good business lawyer? Well, I think that you first start, with word of mouth, ask for, ask people, you know, who have had experiences or, or who are established in their fields and their industries and things, you know, I need a lawyer. Can you recommend somebody that personal recommendation? First of all, you, nobody's going to recommend somebody they don't think is any good because it makes them look bad. Once you've gotten a few referrals or recommendations, then, you know, do a little bit of red of legwork, do a little research, look them on now, nowadays we all have websites. So you can sort of see what we're all about. Make sure it's a good fit that, you know, if you're looking for somebody to help you with your trust, coming to an entertainment lawyer is probably not the right answer. And um, although there are some trust lawyers who focus on entertainers, you know, so you want to make sure that it's a good fit. Um, you can examine whether or not they've ever involved, been involved in lawsuits or disciplined by the bar association or those kinds of things. That's a little bit of a, of a deep dive if you're really getting into something big. Um, but ask around, ask for some references or, or, um, you know, go to the Oracle known as Google and, uh, and, and, uh, see what, what things say about them. There are, you know, nowadays everybody gets reviewed on Yelp and, and other websites like that as well. So lots of good information out there, but ultimately interview, meet with the person and interview them and, uh, just make sure it's a good fit because if, if you're dealing with somebody who's just impatient with you or, or, you know, you just, you have to click with your, with your lawyer. It has to be somebody who gets what you're doing, understands your business. And more importantly is that you will actually be comfortable working with and dealing with on an ongoing basis. And, uh, you know, there's, it's a little bit like dating. You got to find the right person. <laughs> so okay. quick, uh, quick question. Sure. Uh, you've been in the, uh, you've been a lawyer for a long time now. Yeah. What's uh, a good experience and a bad experience that you that you saw in your career? Well, you know, it's interesting because as the kind of lawyer that I am, I don't go to court. Uh, I, I did go to court the first few years in practice, and uh, I found that although I was pretty good at the litigation and the disputes, I didn't care for myself very much. I was very, you know, in that adversarial mode. And so best experience I could say is getting out of that side of the business and and really focusing my energy on um, more constructive approach, the deals and, and helping, uh, helping folks to understand the stuff that they are working with so they can protect themselves. Um, some of the great experiences are helping, you know, seeing my clients films get up on the big screen and, and distributed worldwide. It's, it's, it's a wonderful sense of, a, of accomplishment and, um, and, uh, pride for me when my clients projects go well. And, uh, some of the worst, are when they end up in a dispute or, or something and, and client, you know, but when there's a dispute, even if we are able to settle it, 
nobody comes out really happy. <laughs> you know, there's some uh, settlements that are, you know, okay, reasonable for everybody, but somebody's paying out money and somebody's giving up. There's always compromise involved in that. And, and um, um, what I hate to see is, is when clients are sort of stuck in a bad situation and the only way out has been a very expensive, long drawn out battle or negotiation or something like that. And even though it's, you know, putting money in my pocket, I'm charging them for my help. Um, I, I wish that they didn't have to go through that. One more question. Uh, you're the first, because I'm always trying to uh, do some new things on my podcast. Mm -hmm. So this is uh, a question I'll be asking uh, maybe my guests from time to time. Uh, you said before uh, the law was uh, your passion. If you had uh, a career choice to make, uh, what would be the ultimate uh, career choice? Well, you know, that's interesting. I, I came out of the live theater world before I went to college and got into film and television and then, and then into law school. And there's, there are times when I think I, I would have been very happy just staying in the theater business. And I was a sound guy and working on the productions and, and that, that uh, sense of collaboration and teamwork and, and art to uh, make something that just entertains and, and, you know, people leave that audience, leave that stage and leave the theater tapping their feet or humming a tune or something that is in its way. I think that's God's work, you know, entertaining and, and informing and inspiring people is, is great. So I'm, I'm fortunate that uh, I can do the kind of work I do, which helps people to do those things as well as educate. I do some teaching as well. And, um, uh, but yeah, I think yeah, I might've been just as happy being staying in the entertainment side of it all those years ago. Okay. Uh, thanks a lot, Gordon, for your time. Uh, I hope everybody found value in, uh, in this episode. So uh, uh, it's been, it was a lot of information and great information. And uh, I hope you'll be back. Uh, yeah, thank you for having uh, me. I hope you'll be back on, uh, on the podcast. Yeah. And uh, I learned a lot. So I'm, I know I'm going to replay that uh, podcast a few times. <laughs> and uh yeah so on that note uh thank you gordon once again thank you everybody for listening and watching to this podcast welcome to a better lifestyle today it was business law and uh i had gordon firemark so where can people find you uh i forgot i was gonna forget that well the best way to find me is is uh, just to put my name into the the browser you can go with firemark.com which brings you to my law firm website or gordonfiremark.com which brings you to a, a site where i have some of my other uh, i have some online courses and products and things like that available as well so my name.com gordonfiremark.com okay anyways i'll have some uh information in the show notes so uh so people could uh find you online So thanks a lot, everybody. And uh, we'll see you on the next episode. Bye. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And we'll see you next time.